Hello, ladies. It's so good to see all of you. Thank you so much for coming to Bible study today. I mean, it's so good to be here. I am Deb Haygood, part of the Women, Women in the Word teaching team. And it's gray and cold outside, but it's warm in here, and it's a great day to be studying the Word of God. And I want to say hello to West Campus. We are so glad that you are joining us for this study of Acts as well. And how's the study of Acts going? What do you all think? Is it exciting? Is it good? Is it uh, interesting, at least? Yeah, I, I like to say it's revelatory. That means revelation. It's a revelation. The Bible is God's story of love and redemption for mankind, and his story is revealed to us. He reveals it in many ways, but one way he reveals his plan, his love, is through the words in the Bible. And as I've been studying Acts this time, I'll read through and I'll find something that is new to me. And I'll think, Lord, um, I never knew this. Have I read this before or have I just forgotten it? Now, that's a possibility with my memory that I've forgotten it. But the truth is that the Lord is always teaching us through his word. God's word is alive and it's fresh and it's working on us and in us. It's never stale. It never lacks relevance. It's never boring. Boring. My little granddaughter, Finley, she's four years old. She's learned this word, boring. And so this week, she used it with me. Uh, We were having lunch, sitting at the table, and her little sister, Harper, who's 14 months, she was feeding herself, and she has a sippy cup. And Finley looked at me, and she said, Grammy, remember when you used to have to give Harper a bottle? And I said, yes. And she goes, that was so boring. (laughs) I think what she meant was that really cut into the time that you had to play with me. So, boring, but the Word of God is never boring. It's a revelation. And how we've seen the Holy Spirit revealed in the book of Acts. We talked about the first week that the power of the Holy Spirit was an absolute necessity. He's indispensable in the book of Acts. And we've seen the power of the Holy Spirit every week. He's giving the apostles boldness and courage, healing um, people, their uh, doing signs and wonders. They're even speaking in different languages. We saw that in week two. They're telling the story of Jesus in different languages so everyone could hear his story. And the story of Jesus, that brings up the second big thing that we see all throughout Acts, and that's the resurrection of Jesus. They're talking about the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is alive. He rose from the grave. God the Father raised him up. And the apostles are witnesses to that indisputable fact, the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is alive. And they're telling people every chance they get. And so the church, this group of new believers in Jesus Christ, it's growing by leaps and bounds. Last week, um, Vanita talked about how Peter and the apostles stood before the Jewish court, the Sanhedrin, and they told them that God had raised Jesus. He, they had, he had exalted Jesus as Savior and that they were witnesses to that. And so was the Holy Spirit, by the way, whom they had been given. And so today we come to the story of Stephen. So let's turn to Acts chapter 6 and we're going to look at Stephen. Stephen, although his story is short, he is a great example for us. He's a great mentor. Now that word mentor, that has really become 
popular in my adult life. Um, and I am very fortunate to say that as a little girl, I had two godly grandmothers that were great mentors to me. By their words and by their actions, they taught me how to follow Jesus, how to um, walk with him. They were mentors to me before I even knew what a mentor was. And even today, my mom, she's a godly mentor. Um, She's 84 years old, and I'll call her up and say, Mom, how do you do this? Or what's that recipe? Or sometimes I'll even say, Mom, if someone says this to you, how would you respond? Now, some of you are out there saying, "Um, I don't have a godly mentor like that. Well, Christ Chapel's women's ministry has a mentoring program. And so Janet Kendrick will be out at the desk if you have questions about mentoring. Don't go now. Wait until after the lesson is over. Or you can look online um, to the Christ Chapel website and look up in the women's ministry and you can learn more about mentoring. Or you can read the Word of God. Because God is so good. He gives us mentors in the Bible. Godly men and women who are examples of how to walk with Jesus. How to follow him. Stephen is one of those examples. Stephen is a man like Jesus. And isn't that our prayer? We want to be more like Jesus. As we look at the life of Stephen today, we're going to see a man who followed hard after Jesus. And we can learn much from his example. So let's begin by reading verse 1. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So we've got a problem. We have a problem. It's an internal problem. We saw last week that the church had an internal problem with Ananias and Sapphira. That was taken care of pretty quickly. And once again, they have another internal problem. Small thing, but it can grow to become a large thing. And that's true with the church today. We have outside pressures, and then we also have internal struggles. So what exactly is the problem? Well, the word Hellenist there means Greek speaking Jews. So these were Greek speaking Jews, Jews from other countries outside of Judea who spoke Greek and they had come to Jerusalem probably for the feast of Pentecost that we talked about a few weeks ago. And they're in Jerusalem and they hear the good news of Jesus Christ and they believe and so now they've stayed. Now the Hebrews, they would have been the Hebrew speaking Jews. They probably also spoke Aramaic, but they were the locals. They were the native borns, the ones born in Jerusalem and in the um, neighboring towns and and places. They were the locals. And so the Hellenists, they were foreigners, and there was prejudice against them from these local um, Hebrew speaking Jews. They would have looked down on the Greek speaking Jews, the foreigners. Maybe this prejudice had slipped into the early church, or maybe the Hellenist widows were just accidentally overlooked. We don't know. But um, let me say, widows, by the way, they were the poor and needy. We know that land was passed down from father to son, and so when a woman lost her husband, many times she was left without means of support. She had no way to care for herself. And a lot of good Jewish widows would come to Jerusalem to live out their final days. And so some of these had heard the good news of Jesus, and they believed in him, and they were part of the early church. And the really neat thing we learned last week about the early church, they shared with each other. They took care of each other and provided for each other with their physical needs. But somehow these um, Greek-speaking Jewish widows were being overlooked in this daily distribution of food. So what's the solution? Verse 2. 
And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples, that's the twelve apostles, summoned the whole body of believers, and they say, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. So we have the 12 apostles gathering together all the believers. And you have to think that it's been after much prayer because it says they're devoted to prayer. We know they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Spirit, and they offer this solution. They say, pick seven men who are qualified to serve tables. Now, serving tables here could mean tables that actually have food on them that you would sit down and eat from, serving those kind of tables. Or more probably it meant tables where they would pass out food to the needy or maybe even money to the needy so that they could buy food. And these seven men, they would be in charge of the food distribution program. So let's look a little more closely at how the apostles came to this solution. What was involved? Well, first we see that the apostles assess and they address the problem. They don't say, hey, we're too busy for that. Take that somewhere else. They don't ignore it, and so it gets worse. They assess it, and they address it. They see what the problem is. And then they have their priorities straight. They have proper priorities. Their priority is to teach the word of God, doing what Jesus had told them to do, to be witnesses for him. And they were devoted in prayer. And that was so important because prayer was how they yielded to the Spirit. It's how they heard God. It's how they continued on in the strength of the Spirit. They weren't just praying um, five minutes, three times a day. They were spending long times in prayer with the Lord. I read one quote that said, Prayer was the secret, was the strength was the secret of the strength of the early church. Prayer was the secret of the strength of the early church. Now what the apostles are not saying is that they are more important or they're more valuable than um, the others, that there's many ways to serve the Lord. They were called to preach the word of God, and they must not neglect that. Now, they did have more authority. Let me say that. They were chosen to be the leaders of this group. They were chosen by Jesus. So they had more authority. Just like our church leadership today uh, and the elders have authority. But God has given us all important roles in serving him. We all have different things that we are to do to serve Jesus. And they are significant roles. And they are valuable roles. And they are all important roles. We're all needed. Take this Bible study, for instance, Women in the Word. Many are serving so that this functions well. Now, the small group leaders, they're very important to this, but they're not more important than the gal who washes the coffee pot and puts the things away after Bible study. And she's not more important than the role of those that are standing up here teaching the lesson. And those gals are not more important than the one who's running the copies and the um, questions and the material that we need every week. And they're not more important than the guys who are doing the sound and making the videos, the audiovisual. Everyone's role is important. We all serve God in the ways that he has gifted us, and things work really well that way. On your verse sheet, I have a, um, there's actually many verses in the New Testament that talk about this. But Romans 12 is on your verse sheet, and it says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we 
though many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. Let us use our different gifts because they're all important and they're all needed. And the third thing I see the apostles here, they involve the whole church in the solution. They're willing for change to occur. They're willing to um, delegate tasks and share the responsibilities. And so they say, pick seven men that are qualified. Now, what were these qualifications exactly? Well, first in verse 3, it says, from among you. So they were to be believers. They were to be believers in Jesus Christ. Next, it says of good repute. They would be ones of good reputation. They were honest men. They were men of integrity. When someone saw them, they would say, there is an honest man. They also were to be full of the Spirit. Now let me say, whenever you see full of, know that that means controlled by. They were to be controlled by the Spirit. They were walking with Jesus. They were spiritually solid. And they were full of wisdom. And what does wisdom mean? Wisdom, we learned in Proverbs, is skill in living. It's being able to make good, godly decisions with those everyday things that we face in life. They could make good decisions. So they chose these men. Verse 5, Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. So what does that mean? Um, these seven men come, and the apostles pray for them. And laying hands on them means that they commissioned them to this task that they were to do. They gave them the authority for this task, and they blessed them. When you see laying on of hands, it means commissioning and blessing and what is the result? Verse 7 tells us, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So we see that people are doing their jobs. The apostles are still preaching the word. And it says here that many priests have become obedient. Many priests have believed. Now there were probably, I've read anywhere between 2,000 and 18,000 Jewish priests in the city of Jerusalem. And many were coming to believe in Jesus. What a great thing that is. And so now with verse 8, we're going to turn to Stephen and we're going to look fully at Stephen for the um, rest of this chapter and all of chapter 7. And we've already learned that Stephen, first of all, is a servant. He's the first one that's mentioned in the 7. So we know that he serves God. He serves um, the early church by being part of this food distribution program. And that looks a lot like Jesus because Jesus was a servant. In fact, Jesus tells us in Mark 10:45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then Jesus actually gives us a picture of service. He takes a basin and he takes a towel and he washes the disciples' feet in John 13. And after he does that, he says, For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done for you. Jesus was a servant. We look like Jesus when we're serving others. We also know that Stephen was, um, had a good reputation, that he was full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. 
We read in chapter 8 that Stephen is full of grace and power and was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Stephen is controlled by the Holy Spirit. And so we see him full of wisdom and faith and grace and power. And now he's even performing miracles. And this is evidence of God's grace on Stephen. Let's go on and read verse 9. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So now we see that Stephen is a great a debater of the truth of Jesus. He's a skilled and wise debater. Let's talk a second about um, where he's debating. It's in the synagogue of the freedmen. Now, synagogues, those were places of Jewish worship, specifically a place um, that, of religious instruction and teaching. This is where they read the scriptures, the Old Testament, and they talked about them and they taught them and even some people would debate them. And there were probably 400 synagogues in Jerusalem. And this synagogue, it was founded by freedmen. And what that means is Greek-speaking Jews in these countries mentioned here in Cyrene and um, Alexandria, that's northern Africa, Cilicia is modern-day Turkey. These men had gained their freedom under Roman law and now had come back to Jerusalem as Greek-speaking Jews and they were worshiping God in this synagogue. And Stephen was there and he's debating skillfully the truth of Jesus. And it says no one could stand up for him because he stand up to him because of his wisdom and he was speaking through the Holy Spirit. Now let me say something. He was filled with the Holy Spirit, but Stephen, as we're going to see in just a minute, knew the scriptures very well. He had the scriptures in his heart and in his mind. And he probably had talked a lot to the apostles. He knew a lot about Jesus, what Jesus did and said. It was in his heart and in his mind. There was something for the Holy Spirit to draw on as he filled Stephen and spoke. And this is what you all are doing today. You're studying the word of God. You're putting it in your heart and in your minds. And that's important. We need to meditate on the word and we need to memorize it and to hear it and to study it so that we have it in our heart and minds for the Holy Spirit to use as we go out and walk with Jesus. So he's debating skillfully and the Jewish men say, hey, way to go, Stephen. We agree with you. Okay, no. That's not what they say in verse 11. It's quite the opposite. You all might remember reading that they went out secretly and they get men to come and give false accusations about Stephen. They're spreading out and they want them to say things that are going to stir up the people and really get the attention of the Jewish leaders. And so their false accusations is that Stephen is speaking against Moses and against God. And sure enough, the elders and the scribes, they hear this, they're um, upset, they grab Stephen, and they take him before the Sanhedrin. And then they even have, in verse 13, false witnesses who say this about him. This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. The holy place is the temple and the law is the scriptures of Moses. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? 
So they take Stephen um, before the Sanhedrin, and they say these things that are going to upset the Sanhedrin. Let me tell you, um, quickly, uh, once again remind you about the Sanhedrin. This is the Jewish ruling council. It's made up of 70 men of the two different parties of Jews, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were the legalistic Jews. They kept the law to the very minutest detail. They kept the letter of the law and even beyond. And the Sadducees, they were the wealthy, um, the priestly party, and they really had, um, they were the the more significant rulers in the Sanhedrin at that time. And interestingly, the the Sadducees only uh, studied the first five books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's called the Law of Moses. Or it was written by Moses. So you can see how upset they would have been when they hear this um, story that Stephen is speaking against Moses. Interestingly, we see Stephen standing there. He's calm. He's peaceful. He's serene. It says that his face, like the face of an angel, probably means that his face was glowing. And you did looked in your homework and you saw there was someone else in Scripture um, full of the grace of God, had a glowing face, and that was Moses. And isn't that interesting? God, it's like he's saying to these people, he's not against Moses. He looks like Moses. He is my faithful servant. Listen to him. We also see Stephen here looking a lot like Jesus. This kind of reminds us of Jesus. He was falsely accused, seized, arrested, taken before the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, stood before Caiaphas, and when it says the high priest asked Stephen, that is probably also Caiaphas, the same high priest that Jesus stood before at his trial. So how does Stephen respond? He says, brothers and fathers, hear me. Now, this is really a respectful term. This is um, kind, showing respect to them. Brothers, he wants to identify with them. He's saying that we are fellow Jews. We share the same history. And when he says fathers, that's a term of respect because he recognizes that they're his elders and leadership. He's not defensive. He's not trying to irritate them or antagonize them. He wants them to listen to the truth. And so he begins an eloquent speech. And it's the longest in the book of Acts. And he is the first non-apostle in Acts with a major speech. And in this speech, he speaks very little in his own defense. Rather, he tells the past history of God's working. and, And he does this so that they will see... how the um, Christian faith based on Jesus Christ has come to be. It's really a defense of this Christian faith and how the history of God points to this. Now, I realize that this speech may have seemed a little tedious to you. I found it a little difficult um, the first time I read it, a little confusing. And so um, I want to give a couple truths, a couple themes that will help us with that because this speech is really brilliant It was brilliant. Um, The leaders would have understood exactly what Stephen was saying and even sometimes just implying with the words that he used. So here are the the, um, three truths, the three themes that Stephen weaves throughout his whole speech. The first one, um, God has a plan and it is always moving forward and it involves change. Now these are the truths, these are the things that tripped up the Jewish leadership so that they missed Jesus as the Savior. They did not like change. They didn't want change, and so they missed God's plan. 
Second, that the blessings of God are not limited to the land of Israel and the temple area. This had become a stumbling block for them too. They had become like religious snobs about the land of Israel and about the temple. And the third theme is that Israel um, has this pattern of opposing God's plan and God's men that he raises up uh, to carry out this plan. They have this pattern throughout their long history of opposing God and his plan. And we're going to see this throughout this speech. So let's begin reading it. He says, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory, make note of that, because at the end he's going to say, see the glory of God. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living, Israel. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. So Stephen begins his history with Abraham, very good place to start because the Jews all thought of Abraham as the father of the Jewish nation. So he begins with Abraham and right off the bat we see God has a plan and it involves change. He asks Abraham to leave his home and his country and to go into the unknown where God is going to leave him, to lead him. And Abraham obeys. He obeys God and he goes and he believes God. Even though um, God hasn't given him one son, he believes God that the land will be an inheritance to his descendants. He puts his faith in God. Even after God is going to tell him that your descendants, by the way, will be enslaved for 400 years. But he says in verse um, eight, uh, 7, But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And Abraham believes God with that. Verse 8, it says, And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. So those twelve patriarchs we see there, that means the sons of Jacob. And those sons and their families are going to become um, the twelve tribes of Israel and the nation of Israel. And why does uh, Stephen mention circumcision? What's that all about? Well, circumcision was very important to the Jews, and it was one of the traditions that they had faithfully carried out and continued even up until Stephen's day. Because circumcision was a sign of God's promise to Abraham and all his descendants, to the Jews. Circumcision was a promise. It was a, a, a sign of the covenant that God would um, be their God and they would be his people. It was a promise of blessing. It was a sign of the relationship that God would have with the whole nation Israel. And so Stephen is reminding them of the meaning of circumcision. They were continuing this practice, but it was just a religious practice. It was meaningless. The relationship with God was lacking and that was what it was pointing to. God had kept his part, but time and again, the Israelites had gotten very far from the heart of God. So let's go back to um, verse 8 here with the patriarchs, and we're going to continue reading. This is um, uh, 
all contained in the book of Genesis. And uh, towards the end, we see this story. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Jacob's 12 sons, um, Joseph is the 11th, and his 10 older brothers are jealous of Joseph. And so they uh, decide to get rid of him. They sell him into slavery, and off to Egypt he goes. Now they go back home, and they tell their father Jacob that Joseph was killed by a wild animal. But we see here that God is with Joseph. And so over time, Joseph becomes Pharaoh's right-hand man. It's a pretty interesting story in Genesis. And Joseph has a dream, and he sees that there is going to be a famine in the land. And so for the seven years before that, he's put in charge of storing up the extra grain and putting it in storehouses so they would have food when the famine comes. And that's what happens. And so Jacob and his family back in Israel, they're part of this famine. They hear Egypt has grain. And so Jacob sends the, uh, his sons to go and buy grain. And when they get there, Joseph recognizes his brothers. They don't recognize him. Now many things happen and there's some ins and outs. But the uh, end of the story is that Joseph tells his brothers who he is. But he says, don't fear. I forgive you. You meant it for harm, but God meant it for good. Go back and get our father Jacob and your families and come back to Egypt. And so that's how they get to Egypt. And right here we see all three of these themes that we talked about. We see the theme that God's plan involves change. Joseph has gone to Egypt. And we see the second part, that blessing occurs outside of Israel. Right now it's occurring in Egypt. That's where the food is. And we see the third thing, that they always reject God's leaders. They rejected, the brothers rejected Joseph, but he becomes their savior. He's the one that God has put in a position to provide food for them and for their families. Joseph right here is a picture of Jesus Christ. And so with verse 16, that ends that part of the history of the patriarchs. And now in verse 17, uh, Stephen is going to begin talking about Moses. And you remember, they had accused him um, of being against Moses. And we're going to see quite the opposite with this. So let's read 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants. Do you see, uh, I forgot to mention the word our. He wants to identify with the Jews. Stephen uses the word our over and over again. Look for that. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. So what we see here is hundreds of years have passed and the Israelites have flourished and they have multiplied and they've increased in number. So that now there's a new Pharaoh. Hundreds of years have passed. Joseph's long been dead and he doesn't even remember Joseph and he becomes worried about all of these Israelites and he's intimidated by them. And so he has several plans. First is to put them into slavery, but even under hard labor, they continue to flourish. And so then he tries a couple other things, ending with, let's throw all of the male Jewish babies into the Nile River and drown them. 
And at this time, Moses is born, and his mom kind of hides him and keeps him for three months, but she's afraid that he's going to be discovered, and we all know this story. She puts him in a basket, and he floats down the Nile River. The Pharaoh's daughter sees him, and she loves him, and she takes him out and adopts him, and he lives in the Pharaoh's house. In verse 28, it says, And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. And then verse 23, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. So he goes out into the slave section. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man, and he avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. This is a pretty clear implication for these Jewish leaders. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling, and he tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. So Moses sees that they're not really going to listen to him. These two Hebrews are fighting, and they, he realizes they know that he's killed an Egyptian. He's afraid that others are going to find out. And so he leaves Egypt, and he goes to Midian. And verse 30 says, Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. Note that there's blessing taking place, and it's not in Israel. God talks to him in a flame of fire in a bush, and when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. And then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. So God has a plan, and it's going to include Moses. He is sending Moses back to Egypt, and we know that Moses wasn't too excited, but he does obey God, and he goes back, and God is going to have him deliver his people out of Egypt. And that is what happens in verse 35. Stephen continues, This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer. So we see again that theme that they always miss um, and are opposed to their leader, redeemers. And we're going to see that they accept him at first, but they're going to reject him again before it's all over. So let's go on to continue reading. 36, this man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, and now Stephen is going to slip in this prophecy, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is a clear reference to the Messiah. And Peter has already explained this was a reference to Jesus Christ himself because when Jesus came, people saw Jesus and they said, hey, here is the prophet. Here's the prophet Moses was talking about. You looked at that in your homework and on your verse sheet, I have that, John 6:14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Stephen's pointing out here, the Jewish people saw that Jesus was the Messiah, but you have missed it. You've missed it. 
Let's carry on here with verse um, 38. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Now, this is talking about Moses being on Mount Sinai, getting the law and the Ten Commandments from God. Down below, um, what are the Israelites doing? Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. And they made a calf in those days, and they offered a sacrifice to the idol, and they were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away. God turned away. So Moses, he's up um, on Mount Sinai. He is getting the law of Moses. He comes, um, the law of God. He comes down and he sees the Israelites. They're stubborn. They're impatient. They're disobedient. They're ungrateful. And once again, they reject Moses. And now they've turned to idol worship. And so they are uh, ultimately rejecting and disobeying God himself. God himself, and this is a pattern that would continue on through their history until God's discipline would be that they would go into captivity in Babylon. And that's what the scripture here is in verses uh, 42 and 43. This is a prophecy. Part of it's from Amos, part of it from 1 Kings, about this um, being in captivity in Babylon. These leaders would know that history very well. And so he ends this section of Moses implying that Just like our forefathers, you don't accept God's plan that involves change. You don't accept God's leaders, the deliverers, redeemers that God sends. And now Stephen's going to close his speech talking about the temple. That was the other thing that they had accused him of. He says, Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. He's talking here about the tabernacle. When Moses uh, got the law from God, he also got the pattern to make the tabernacle. This was going to be a giant tent, really, and this is where they would worship God. It would have poles and curtains, and inside would be an altar where they would worship um, God and they would make sacrifices. And inside this tent was also a another smaller tent that was the holy place and the holy of holies and here is where the spirit of god dwelt the shekinah glory and then when they moved they would take down the tent and they would travel with it and they'd set it back up and they would worship god and this continued throughout the wilderness and even it says um, in verse 45 when joshua led the israelites into the promised land they took the temple and this is how they worshiped god until we read that king david He had this desire. It says uh, in verse 46, David, who found favor in the sight of God, asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You know, he's, Stephen is saying here, the tabernacle was God's idea. The temple wasn't God's idea. That was David's idea. But David found favor with God, and so God allowed him to um, have the tabernacle. His son Solomon actually built it. He's saying the temple's okay. It's a place of worship, but it doesn't contain God. God is bigger than that. He's the God of heaven and earth. He's created all things. He's not contained by the temple You have put too much importance on it. 
And they had. They really revered this structure to the point that it had almost become an idol to them. And they missed Jesus because of it. They missed a relationship with God because of it. And so now he closes um, his defense with this climax and this accusation. Let's read verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law is delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now those words, stiff-necked and uncircumcised heart, those would be recognized, um, very recognized um, from the scriptures. The prophets all used it to describe disobedient Israelites. Isaiah and Jeremiah and even Moses said it in Deuteronomy 10.16 on your verse sheet. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. They would know those words. And he says, you've persecuted the prophets of God throughout our history. And now they had even killed John the Baptist. Herod had him beheaded. And he was the one that said when he saw Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so he closes this uh, defense with an accusation of them. He accuses them of killing the righteous one. He said, you are all about keeping the law, but you have not kept it. You've missed the whole point. And what's their response? Verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. They were so angry. But Stephen's response He, full of the Holy Spirit, gazes into heaven and he sees the glory of God. Now we've come to the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God and he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This is so significant. He has this vision and Jesus is standing. All through the New Testament, you see Jesus described as seated at the right hand of God. Jesus said it about himself. The Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of God. All through Hebrews, I have on your um, verse sheet, uh, verse in Colossians. We're not going to read it. Talking about Jesus seated at the right hand of God. But Stephen sees God standing Jesus is standing. And why is that? I think because he wants to receive Stephen to himself. He's standing to receive him. It's a, it's a position of welcome and honor. It's like when you go to your friend's house or when I go home to my mom's and she's standing to receive me. She doesn't just sit down and yell, come on in. She comes to receive me, to welcome me. And we do that with our friends and our family. Jesus is standing to receive Stephen That must have given him such courage, such peace, and such joy as he sees this. And what is the response of the Sanhedrin? Verse 57, they cry out with a loud voice and they stop their ears and they rush at him. It's kind of like going, la, 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 la. They can't even stand it. And then they cast him out of the city and they stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. 
we see that the Sanhedrin, they are out of control. You get the picture. They're yelling. They're pulling their hair out, stopping up their ears. They rush at Stephen. They drag him out. This is a group of men out of control. This violent, passionate, probably illegal display of emotions and actions. And Stephen, what do we see? His last words are prayers, and they're very similar to the last words of Jesus. Once again, he looks like Jesus. He says, Jesus, receive my spirit. And Jesus' last words on the cross were, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And then, we see, um, and then Jesus' first words on the cross were a prayer, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He was asking this for those that were crucifying him. Stephen does the same. His dying words are a prayer spoken in a loud voice. He says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And then he dies. I think what Stephen may or may not have known, but after reading this speech, I think he realized that this was going to be a turning point for the Jews. This was a turning point for the Jews. The apostles and the other believers had been in Jerusalem sharing the good news about Jesus to the Jews. And now this was going to change. God was going to move the witnesses out of Jerusalem and into Judea and Samaria. Only the apostles would be left there. But this big push to share the good news of Jesus with the Jews in Jerusalem, that was over. That was over. Now the witnesses would go out to Judea and Samaria. So chapter 7 ends with the witness in Jerusalem coming to an end as they go out and begin to witness in Judea and Samaria. And I want to talk for one uh, last minute, 60 seconds, about Stephen's example. What can we learn from him about following Jesus? What can we incorporate in our lives? I'm sure each one of you have about 10 or 15 things. Uh, I only had room on the outline for three, so here's uh, my top three. Be a servant. Serve others. We look like Jesus when we are serving others. Second, be a woman filled with the Holy Spirit, controlled by the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom and grace and prayer power and faith we are able to follow jesus when we are filled with the holy spirit and the third thing stand firm for jesus just like stephen did you know we may not be killed as a martyr for christ or we may we don't know what the future holds but we do know that each of us are going to face trials and pressures and attacks on our faith hardships that can cause us to falter and just like Stephen was strengthened by this vision of Jesus standing at the right hand of God, we too can be encouraged by the words that Jesus spoke to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. And let me just read verse 9. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Just like Stephen, we want to be like Jesus. And Jesus encourages us with those words. My grace is sufficient for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good and so mighty. Father, your plan goes forward, whether we see it or not. Lord, I pray that each of us in this room would follow hard after you. Lord, that we would see these things of Stephen and incorporate them into our lives. Lord, that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit, loving you, serving you, and serving others. Father, that we would stand firm for you. Lord, I pray that you would bless each woman in this room, grant them peace, 
and joy in your favor. And I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.